The message you are listening to was recorded by Campus Outreach Minneapolis for the 2020 Campus Outreach Missions Night. More information about Campus Outreach Minneapolis can be found at cominneapolis.com. All right, how's everyone doing? Good? Yeah. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, uh, I am uh, so uh, thrilled to be with you guys. Uh, we are, uh, I brought my friend Jeff with me. He's in the very back also. Uh, we're from Texas. Anyone been to Texas? Yeah. Uh, yeah. All right. Uh, mm, Dallas area. Um, but uh, Afshin, that's my name. Yeah, it's a good Texan name if you can't tell. Not really. Uh, it's uh, Persian. It's uh, fr uh, from Iran. We just had some Persian food, by the way. Uh, brother who knew where Hormasabzi is from. We just had some Hormasabzi. And uh, it was pretty amazing. But, um, yeah, so growing up in Texas with the name Afshin, uh, everyone called me the Turban Cowboy growing up, which was awesome. That was a joke. Thanks for laughing. They called me everything, Sheik of the Burning Sand. They called me all kinds of crazy stuff. But uh, basically, um, I, uh, sh I wanna, what I want to do is I want to share uh, just very quickly uh, uh, my story. I'm preaching on Sunday at Bethlehem also, if you, uh, if you guys are coming on Sunday. Uh, I'm going to be preaching um, uh, a uh, missions uh, message, basically, from 1 Thessalonians 1. But today I'll I, I share a little bit of my story, and then I want to talk to you about God's will. And um, I'll tell you where we're going with that. But uh, basically, I was uh, born in Houston, in Texas. When I was two, my family moved back to Iran. <clears throat> and when I was uh, six years old, uh, the Islamic Revolution hit that country, late 70s. And fighting broke out. My father, being a doctor, had the means to get us out. And we got out about 10 days before the Shah, the king of Iran, escaped. And moved back to uh, America, in Houston, uh, when I was six. So I left when I was two. I'm back when I'm six. So I didn't speak English. I spoke Farsi, which is the language of Iran. Uh, I still speak Farsi. And so God, in his incredible plan, provided for me a Christian tutor. Uh, my family didn't know she was Christian, but they were paying her to meet with me after school and read me books to teach me the English language. And this lady starts teaching me English. In the second grade, she comes up to me and says, Afshin, I've been reading you all these books. Now I want to hand you the most important book you'll ever get in your life. And she handed me a small New Testament. And she said, you're not going to understand this book today, but promise me you'll hold on to it and read it later in your life. And so, guys, she plants a seed in my life in the second grade that wouldn't come to fruition until 10 years later. Some of you guys might be saying, well, man, I'm just a college student. Like, what could God do through me? I mean, think about this. A second grade tutor who saw an opportunity to plant a seed that forever changed my life. By the way, she gave me that New Testament during the Iran hostage crisis. And basically, if you've seen the movie Argo, I don't know if you've seen that movie, but basically a bunch of Americans were held hostage in Iran for over a year. And so we had rocks thrown through our window in Houston because people knew my family was from Iran. We had our parent, my parents' car's tires would be slashed. Older high school kids would threaten to beat up my brother and I. And I share that not to throw a pity party, but just to say, had any other American gave, given me that New Testament, I would have thrown it away. But since it came from the one lady who loved me, who poured herself into me, who was teaching me English, I said, man, this must be important, and I held on to it. So you want to win a Muslim for Christ or you want to win a non-Christian for Christ? I believe you got to earn the right to be heard. 
And this lady did it by the way she loved me. Didn't see me as a threat, but saw an opportunity to show the love of Christ. So I took that New Testament, grew up in a Muslim home. My dad was the president of the Islamic Medical Society in Houston, very prominent Muslim. I was taught the five pillars of faith of Islam and was taught that Jesus is just a prophet. So my senior year in high school, I'm playing basketball, and I took the Lord's name in vain, just said Jesus, and the guy walks up to me and goes, hey, man, that Jesus, you just said he's my God. I go, no, he's not. He's your, he's your prophet, you mean. He goes, no, he's my God. I go, no, he's just a prophet. And he goes, I'm telling you, he's God. And I thought the guy was nuts. But God put that Bible in my mind. And I said, you know, I think I got a New Testament. I mean, I didn't know it was a New Testament. I thought it was just the, the whole Bible. I, go, I think I got a Bible somewhere. So I walk upstairs to my room, look all over my room. And if you can believe this, after 10 years, I found that small New Testament sitting at the bottom of my closet waiting for me. So I opened it up and began reading. I read the whole book of Matthew in one sitting. I didn't understand it all. But I would hide my reading from my father and my family. I'd read under the covers with a flashlight. So if they walked in, they wouldn't figure out what I was doing. Just kept this going until finally I got to the book of Romans one day. And I read chapter 3 where I read about a righteousness, or if you will, a right standing with God that comes apart from the law. Meaning apart from what I do for God. But it's a righteousness that comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. It's Romans 3.22. Everyone knows the next verse, but that verse nailed me to all who believe. And so I was invited to uh, an event, a Christian event, where I went and heard the gospel, and I became a follower of Christ. Now, I was afraid what would happen if my father found out. So I hid my faith from him. I would sneak out to go to church. I would hide my Bible. And finally, one day, my dad found out, and he made me choose between him and Jesus. And everything in me wanted to say, forget it, I'll be a Muslim. And I share that so you know I'm not boasting, because even I was surprised when I said, Dad, if I have to choose between you and Jesus, then I choose Jesus. If I have to choose between my earthly father and my heavenly father, then I choose my heavenly father. My dad said, then you're no longer my son. Get out of my face. This owns me on the spot, okay? I walk upstairs uh, to my room, and I basically say, God, how could you do this to me? How, how could you take my dad away from me? And the Lord humbled me. Uh, I didn't hear his voice audibly, but he led me to a passage of scripture in Matthew 10 where Jesus says, whoever acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before men, I'll disown him. Now remember, I'm reading this right after my dad disowned me. Jesus goes on to say, ready for this? Don't suppose I've come to bring peace to the earth. I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword, for I've come to turn a man against his father. And I'm reading this going, whoa, this just happened for me. A daughter against her mother. A man's enemies are the members of his own household. Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. All right? Anyone uh, who wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And that's when I first understood, friend, what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Not just to believe the right things about him, but to really follow him. And for me, my dad was really number one. And God had to move in like a sword and even cut through a family. And by the way, he may cut through you in a relationship and a desire and a plan. But the number one question is this. Do you follow Jesus or do you just believe the right things? Jesus says, 
If you want to be my disciple, you must forsake all that you have, deny yourself, forsake all that you do. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. In Luke 14, he says, you must forsake all that you have in order to be my disciple. And so uh, that day I said, Jesus, I understand. Again, uh, not like perfect. It's not like one sacrifice and then you move on. No, I have to die every day. As Paul says, I die daily. So I went to college in Austin at the University of Texas. All right, listen to how faithful God was. God gave me a Christian roommate. I went potluck, which you know what that means. You don't pick your roommate. Just fill out a form, and they slap you with somebody for a year. Fifty-something thousand students at UT. Pray, God, give me a Christian roommate. God gave me a Christian roommate, pray for this, from a Muslim background, okay, who had just accepted Christ, who was hiding his, his faith from his dad, who also was a prominent Muslim in Houston. You're not impressed yet? Okay, we both had six letters in our first and last name, all right? We both had the same Bible when we met each other. And on top of all this, no joke, we both dated the same girl in high school and didn't know each other, all right? Seriously, not at the same time. That'd be weird, all right? But uh, I guess she liked olive skin. I don't know. But, and, ready for this? We both had her same senior picture in our wallets the day we met each other, all right? Now, you tell me that's not God, all right? So God used this guy and me to lean on each other as his father would also disown him. A year after my dad disowned me, he took me back in, but only on a provisional basis, as long as I go and be a doctor and make him proud. And so I basically ran from God because I said, all right, God, my father has kind of accepted that I'm a Christian. Now I'm going to be a doctor and make him proud. That was my dream, was to look at my dad on my medical school graduation and hear him say, I'm proud of you, son. And how he was going to pay for my entire medical school, and I was going to take over his practice and be set for life. But God called me into ministry, and I knew it, and everyone around me knew it, and I ran from it. My older sister becomes a Christian, and she writes me a letter, and she says, Afshin, you're running from God to please Dad. And she said, Afshin, a Christian out of God's will is like a fish out of water. He's going to struggle until he's put back in the water in God's will. And I was struggling. And that might be you right now. I mean, you might be really, really just on the inside. You know you are running. And you're not at ease. And I'm telling you, the hardest thing I had to do was take my dad uh, to lunch. Before I did that, by the way, uh, another part of my story I don't always share. I was dating a girl at the time who literally said I will never be a pastor's wife, just FYI. So basically, I, I had my plan for me. I said, God, thank you for heaven. I mean, this is pretty much what I was saying. But don't touch my life. I'm going to marry this girl. Can't have anyone better for me. My dad's going to be proud of me. The hardest thing I had to do, first I went and took her to uh, dinner and told her the news. I'm going to ministry. I'm going to seminary. She called it. Uh, she, she basically said, I can't be a pastor. And we broke up. And let me just say, thank you, Jesus. Okay? Because... The wife I have today, I'm just telling you, trust the Lord, okay? Trust the Lord, okay? What's up? Why are you laughing? Yeah, you. You want to go? <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm joking. I'm joking. I'm joking. I mean, I said, the wife I have, and he goes, <laughs> that's the worst time, by the way, that you can do that snort, all right? So, anyway, um, 
We'll talk after. I'm just joking. All right. And then I take my dad to lunch, and my hand is shaking the whole time as the food gets there, the dessert, the refill of coffee, and I'm just procrastinating. And I said, Dad, um, I said, um, you know, you know, I love you, uh, but God's calling me to go to ministry. He called it the biggest stain on his life. Um, he said, it is as if you've died in my heart. And I said, you know how much I want you to be proud of me, Dad? And he said, not only would I never be proud of you, but I'll always be ashamed of you as long as I live. Those are the hardest words to hear from your dad. But I went to the Metroplex with $4 in my pocket, Dallas. Didn't have a job. Only my first semester's tuition paid for by my church to go to seminary. And when I get there, there's a check waiting for, uh, waiting for me for $100. Got me through a couple of weeks. It's run down youth house that belonged to a church. They'd fixed it up. They said, you can come live here for free. This guy in Dallas finds out about my story, says, I'm going to pay for your whole seminary degree. This church finds out about me, says, we come be our pastor's assistant. Then I start preaching at that church. And then God opens up a door for me to have a nationwide speaking ministry where even I've gone overseas and preached the gospel been back to the Middle East to train Iranian pastors who've gone back to Iran where my story starts to plant underground churches. Why? Because I'm an amazing speaker or because I have a good resume or because my dad was a pastor? No. Look at me now, guys. Because God had a plan for my life. And he's got a plan for your life. And I'm telling you, Jesus says, if you want to hold on to your life, you're going to lose it. But if you lose it for my sake, you'll find it. Today, I could have my dad proud of me as a doctor. But I would have missed the life Christ had for me. All right? And so I just want to urge you where you're at. Trust the Lord. Follow him. And that leads into what I want to share with you about God's will today. You still with me? Yeah? All right. I used to speak. Uh, we had a ministry in Texas where 1,500 college students would come uh, to this old theater um, called the Hippodrome in Waco, Texas. And I would speak, it's a thing called Vertical. And so college students were probably like my favorite people to, to speak to, okay? So when they said, hey, will you come early and speak to the college ministry? I'm like, yes, okay? But let me just say this. Um, you can imagine that probably what my the number one story uh, excuse me, the number one question I get from your age group uh, is essentially, Afshin, how can I know God's will for my life? Now, that question's asked in different ways. Like, how can I know if I'm supposed to go into this major or that major, get this degree or that degree, go into this job or go into that job? How can I know if I'm supposed to live here or live there? And then, of course, there's that elusive question, right? How can I know if she's the one, right? That mysterious one for me, right? Some guys, I look at them and I go, bro, she may be the only one for you. No, I'm just kidding. That's horrible. I would never say that. Never, never. No, but how can I know she's the one, right? You probably asked some of these questions, right? Does that mean too, too rough? Yeah, maybe just a little bit. Okay, sorry. Um, so it got me thinking uh, about a game that we used to play when I was in like middle school. Uh, where you could determine your future on a sheet of paper with a pen. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? Are you kidding me? 
Raise your hand if you've heard of MASH. What is, th this game is still going on? Raise your hand if you've never heard of MASH. Okay, we're gonna play, hey, real quick, we're gonna play MASH real quick, all right, is that cool? Is that cool? Hold on, hold on, hold on. All right, MASH. MASH, you ready? All right, raise your hand if you've never heard of MASH, honestly, raise your hand. All right, you're gonna learn right now, okay? Some of you are like, I played MASH today. Look, ready? All right, what you do is you get a sheet of paper like this. I know you can't see it in the back, but don't worry about it. At the top, you write MASH, M-A-S-H. M stands for? Unbelievable. Who started this game? I mean, guys, I'm old. This game has been going on forever. So M stands for, come on, say it loud. Mansion. A stands for? S stands for? H stands for? Mansion, apartment, shack, house. Okay. Then along the side, you would write girls that you, well, for me being a guy, girls that you want to end up marrying. And by the way, the sky was the limit. Like, no one sat me down and said, bro, you're Iranian, you're in the middle school. Forget it, right? You can pick whoever you wanted, right? Now, this is where you guys are going to be totally clueless, and my buddy Jeff in the back, and uh, anyone else Jeff's age back there, I won't point you out, are going to know who I'm talking about. Because I am a child of the 80s. You're not going to know who these girls are, these ladies are. But my list consisted of... Christy Brinkley, anyone? Crickets. Brooke Shields. Farrah Fawcett. No one? Do y'all know these names? All right, all right, okay. All right, all right. Olivia Newton-John. Okay, this is making some people uncomfortable. Hold on. Kelly LeBrock, if you don't know who that is, in Weird Science, they made the perfect girl, right? That's who that is, right? And then your friend would put the whammy girl, the girl you would not want to end up with, right? Whatever, right? And then on the bottom, you'd have jobs. Again, no one would say, hey, dude, you're never, you're dreaming, right? You're a pipsqueak. So for me, it was NFL, NBA, Major League Baseball, doctor, astronaut, and then your friend would put, put the whammy, whatever it is, proctologist or something. I don't know. So anyway, so, sorry. Is someone in here like, that's my major. That's what I'm about. <laughs> so and then on the left side, stay with me. I'm going somewhere, I promise. All right, I'm going somewhere, I promise. Uh, Tim's in the back sweating. Hold on. All right, on the left side, you put cars you'd want to drive. Again, child of the 80s. So for me, Lamborghini, Ferrari. DeLorean, all right, because we all saw Back to the Future, all right, Corvette, Trans Am, and then your friend would put Pinto or whatever, right? Then what you do is you get a pen and you make a spiral until your friend says, stop, stop thank you. Then you count the layers uh, in your spiral, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. So eight's your magic number, and you go around this little board Every eight, you cross off. So you start with F, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Oh, there goes Olivia. And over and over and over, eight, until you have one of each category. And somehow, this sheet of paper, man, it was going to determine your destiny, right? I mean, you're on the edge of your chair. And by the way, it would never work out. Like, you'd be... You'd be in the NFL, but you live in a shack, right? Like, maybe I give away all my money, right? But, I mean, we, we did this. Now, why do I bring up a very silly game? And it is silly, even if you're like, dude, I played it today. It's silly, okay? Why do I bring up this game? 
Because if you will, I know it's just a game. It's just a fun game. But if you will, this is the American dream for you on a sheet of paper. Pretty much what the world, our culture is going to tell you is essentially you make a lot of money, you marry a hot wife, you, you know, uh, drive a fast car. I mean, this is pretty much, especially when I grew up, this was like the end all be all of life. It's the American dream. And so what I want to do is I want to put this up against God's word with you really quickly in just the whatever 15 minutes I have, maybe 20. I'll go fast. Is that cool? All right. Uh, I want to I want to talk to you about God's will real quick. So grab your Bible and go to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. All right, this is a passage that's talking about suffering, all right? But in the midst of it, I want you to see what he says here about God's will. Um, look what he says here. Since therefore, verse 1, 1 Peter 4, Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, that's this sheet of paper, if you will, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, and it goes on to say what the Gentiles run after. Right Now, here's the deal. There's a lot more I could say about this, but I, my, my purpose is not to really exegete this text, but just to say this. What this text is saying is you've spent enough time running after what the world is running after. Now we should be running after the will of God. But here's the problem, gang. When I get around Christian college students and we start talking about God's will, it's interesting to me that most of the time what we're talking about is who am I going to marry, where am I going to live, what's my job going to be, right? It's those kind of questions, right? That's what we're consumed with. As if God's up there wringing his hands going, man, I hope that Johnny figures out that he's supposed to marry Mary. And that's like the end all be all for you. Now hear me. Does God care about who you marry and where you live and what your job is? Absolutely he does. Are those important? Yes, they're important. But here's what I want to submit to you right where you're at in your stage of life right now. Here's what I want to submit to you. What if that's not the ultimate of God's will for you? What if those are the experiences of life that we go through that are actually serving to meet what God's will ultimately is for you? And now I want to so I'm, what we're going to do today, we're going to look at some scriptures that come right out and speak of God's will very clearly. But before we do, let me take you to one more scripture. Go to 1 John now, chapter 3. You just go two books to the right and go 1 John 3. And look what he says here, starting in verse 2. 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Here's what he's saying. We may not know everything in life, but we do know this. That when Christ appears, we shall be like him. So, friend, there's your clue. The goal of life is your, if you're a follower of Christ, is your becoming more and more shaped and fashioned into the likeness of Christ. 
That's what the goal of life is. And he says, if that's your hope, whoever has that hope purifies himself. Now, we don't purify ourselves in our own strength. The Holy Spirit does that. But here's what it's saying. You set your mind on that, on who you're becoming, much more than where you live, what you, you know, do for a living, all this. So again, I say to you, those are important. But we're going to look at a few scriptures as, as, long, as much as I have time. There's many, but I'll hit a few of them real quick. Where it's going to come out, guys, in black and white, as clear as day. Sometimes, some of them are going to literally say, this is God's will. Are you going to find out, friend, that God's will is actually not that mysterious? He's very clear. But his will, obviously, has much more to do with who you're becoming than what you do for, as a career and where you live and who you marry. And so here's my point. My point is this. Here's the thesis of where I'm going. What would it look like for you, where you are, to focus and major on what God has already revealed about his will and what he has not yet revealed to you? I'm not saying you don't care about him. I'm not saying you don't pray about him, but you don't obsess with those. Does that make sense? Leave the unrevealed parts Put it in his hands, the secret things of the Lord belong to him. But what he has revealed, say, okay, I'm going to major on it, and I'm going to just give you a few of them right now. Number one, God's will, young man, young lady, for you, is that you would know Christ intimately. Know Christ intimately. Go really quickly back to 2 Peter chapter 3, and I want you to see this. 2 Peter 3, and look at verse 9. 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he's patient towards you, not wishing, another translation says, not willing, okay? He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So God, if you want to know what his desire is, is that men and women, that people formed in his image would turn, would repent, and know him. In 1 Timothy, it says that we're to pray for all men, and this is good and acceptable in the sight of God, who desires all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. And the truth is not just a set of rules. The truth, friend, is a person, Jesus. So you, here's what you need to know. And I know some of you are looking at me like, are you kidding me? This is like the most basic point that you could say. And I'm going to say it right back to you. This is the point. That we, we, we just neglect God's biggest desire for you. Why he created you. All right? Before you were gifted to do something in a career, let's say, he created you for a purpose. And that purpose was to know him intimately. You were, all things were created by him, through him, and for him. I mean, guys, we kicked that to the curb so easily. In pursuit of our plan and figuring out, we worship the plan of God over God himself. All right? And I'm just telling you, what would it look like for you to focus on that? You know, um, I grew up in Houston, and I, I, I love sports. So this may not resonate with you, but way back in the day, the um, center for the Houston Rockets was a guy named Hakeem Olajuwon. Has anyone ever heard of this guy? Raise your hand if you have. Okay, a few of you have. 
Hakeem Olajuwon is one of the greatest players in NBA history. He was called Hakeem the Dream Olajuwon. I had his poster on my wall. He was the man for me. Well, guess what? When I went to UT, uh, my roommate, as I mentioned to you, was a Muslim who had become a Christian. His dad is a prominent Muslim who discipled Hakeem, the basketball player, as a Muslim. And this man, my, my roommate's dad, found out that my roommate had become a Christian, that I had become a Christian, and he knew how much I loved Hakeem. So he sets up this lunch to try to sway us back to Islam. And he invited Akeem without telling us. So we're sitting at this Lebanese restaurant, right? And every five seconds, he looks out the window. And I'm like, why does he keep looking out the window, you know? And all of a sudden, I look out the window, and this Mercedes with gold plates pulls up. And the back says, dream. And I go, no stinking way. He had a good mash score, I guess, right? And so anyways, he gets out. He gets out of his car, this big, giant, seven-foot man, and he walks into the restaurant. Everyone, like, stands up. Like, Akeem was, he owned the town, right? He walks in, and everyone goes to shake his hand. He walks past all of them and comes, sits across from this college punk. I'm like, yeah, what's up? He's with me. How y'all doing, right? Anyways, so he sits down, and we start having lunch, all right? We talked about sports. We talked about basketball. And then, of course, we talked about faith. I wish you could say I led him to Christ there. That didn't happen. But we talked, and throughout our conversation, people kept coming up and asking for his autograph. They never asked for mine. But anyways, can I get your autograph? It was kind of annoying, you know? So I get home, and uh, of course, you do the same, called all my buddies. <laughs> Guess who I had lunch with today? Akeem Olajuwon. And they're like, are you kidding me? Guess what their first question was to me? Did you get his autograph? And I go... No. Like, wait, hold on. You were with him for two hours? Yeah. You didn't get his autograph? No. Did you get your picture made with him? No. And they're like, what were you thinking? I go, I, I don't know. Smoking something. I don't know what I was thinking, right? I get off the phone. I'm like, what in the world? All these people asking for his autograph. Never crossed my mind. And then it dawned on me. The reason it never crossed my mind, and I'm not saying I'm best buds with Akeem, but for a short period of time, I have something far greater than an autograph. None of those Houstonian businessmen could have pulled up a chair and started a conversation with him. Why? Because they weren't invited to the table. I was. Now, put Akeem aside. The God of this universe has invited you to the table. He writes to the church, by the way, in Revelation. He says, behold, I stand and knock at the door. Whoever opens the door, I'll come in and dine with him. And being a Middle Eastern man, I know the dining room table is the place of intimacy for a family. So here's what he's saying. He's saying, hey, listen, I want you to know me intimately. I want you to dine with me. And so many so-called Christians are saying, you know what? I got the autograph. I'm fine. And we settle for something far less. Number two, God's will is that you would be spirit-filled, that you'd walk in his spirit. Go with me to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians 5, verse 17. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. He's talking about the darkness of the age all around. He's telling them to wake up from their slumber. Know the will of the Lord. And look what the next thing he says is. And do not um, get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, 
but be filled with the Spirit. Now, don't worry. This is not a talk about drinking, but here's the talk. Here's where I'm, where I'm going with this. Here's what's saying. Know what the will of the Lord is. Here's what God desires for you. Instead of getting drunk with wine like the rest of the world is doing, you get filled with the Spirit. That's my will for you. And I think this is such a huge point for us to grasp because so many people in Christian circles misunderstand what the call of Christianity is. What, what, what we're, we're, again, we're called to know Him, and instead, when it comes to our fight against sin, be it being drunk or whatever else you want to put there in that bucket, here's what we think Paul should have said. He should have said, do not be drunk with wine, therefore stay as far away from it and abstain. And that's the end. No, he doesn't just give a negative command. He gives a positive command. Do not be drunk with wine. Instead, he says, be filled with the Spirit. And I think we forget that part. Jesus does this. He says, uh, who, um, he says, whoever comes to me shall never hunger and thirst again. I'm the bread of life. Right? And then he also says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. So I put those two verses together, and I think what Jesus is teaching his disciples is the way you defeat sin in your life isn't just by not doing it, but by replacing it with the good stuff. You don't just fast from junk food, you feast on the bread of life. And I love that he uses the analogy of getting drunk. I mean, what happens when you get drunk? Okay, you don't know, let me tell you. All right, you drink tons of alcohol to the to the point that you hand over your uh, your senses, really, to a foreign substance, namely alcohol. And you start behaving in ways that you normally don't. So people look at you and say, man, that person's drunk. Well, guess what? I think that's what he's getting at. You consume the bread of life. You walk in the Spirit. You are in the Word of God. You are in prayer. You are in the light of God's fellowship of His saints so much that you are literally handing over your senses, if you will, to a foreign substance, namely the Spirit of Christ living within you. So you act like you normally wouldn't. The world wouldn't. And people say, man, what is wrong with that guy? Or what's different with that guy or gal? So when I love my dad when he disowns me. I'm not patting myself on the back. That is, I would say that's supernatural because my natural flesh would just say, well, then forget you, dad. And so I say, God wants us to walk in the spirit. Thirdly, God wants us to uh, pursue sanctification and abstain from sexual immorality. First Thessalonians chapter four. Go there real quick with me. Look at this. I mean, hello. <laughs> Man, I wish, God, I knew your will. Man, why don't you make it so much so clear? All right, ready for this? You want to get clear? <laughs> Look at this. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3. For this is the will of God. It's not so vague. After all, this is the will of God. Look what he says. Your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor and not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Again, 
That's the key, knowing him, feeding on him. But here's what I want to say, and again, I think my time is limited because I did my story first. So I got one more point after this. So I'm just going to hit this one really quickly, okay? Because you've heard plenty of talks about sexual immorality. And all, all I want to say, just look at me now. I'm, I, guys, I'm going to go ahead and show you my cards. I'm 48 years old. I'm old, I know. I'm just trying to say this with every ounce of my being. I wish that when I was in my 20s, somebody would have sat me down and said, Afshin, instead of you obsessing about who your wife is going to be, why don't you obsess about the kind of husband you're becoming? What would it look like for you to say, I don't know who I'm supposed to marry. I'm going to leave that in God's hands. But I do know this. He wants me to abstain from sexual immorality. And you got to hear me say this. What the enemy wants to do is destroy your marriage and your life and your home. Look at me, guys. Today. Do not be a fool and think that this is something you could dabble with in the dark and never bring into the light and you're going to be fine. Do not be a fool, young men, in thinking that, you know what, I have this, this, just, this incredible history of being enslaved by this, and then somehow at my altar, at the altar on my wedding day, I'm going to flip a switch, and now I'm going to start becoming a godly husband. Let me tell you when you become a godly husband today. The choices you make today are ultimately making you the kind of husband you're going to be, the kind of wife you're going to be. So I, I could go on and on, but I'm just trying to say to you, it's not vague. It's very clear. This is what I desire from you, that you would honor me with your body. Fourthly, and probably lastly, there's so many more, God's will. This is the one that's going to sound the most bizarre, but maybe most hit what the ultimate goal is. God's will is that you would be willing to suffer for him. Go back to 1 Peter 4 where we started. And look what it says here. In 1 Peter 4, verse 19, one of my favorite passages. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. <laughs> now, you might say, wait a minute, are, are you sure that means that God wants everyone who believes in him to suffer for him? Because it's saying, let those who suffer. Guess what? Philippians 1.29 says, it has been granted to you. Look at me. If you're a Christian, look at me right now. If you're a Christian, listen to what he's saying. It has been granted to you not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Philippians 1.29. So, Christian, I got some good news for you. Here's your gift. Here's what's been granted to you. You get to believe in him. But hold on, there's more. Look up here. You get to suffer for him. Now, every one of you, without really knowing all the Bible, let's say, if you didn't, you should look at me like, are you nuts? Right? What, what, where's the good news in that? And I say to you, again, eyes up here, if this is the goal of your life, the American dream, there's no gift in suffering. 
at all. But if the goal of your life is what God's word says the goal of your life ought to be, you're becoming like Christ, then you know that even in the trials you go through, as James says, God uses those trials. We're going to count it all joy because he uses them to shape us, right? To mold us and make us more like Christ. But you have to have the right goal, man. If your goal is the American dream, man, there's no hope for you. But if your goal is God's goal for you, there's great hope. Uh, quick story, and then I'll come to an end and pray. When I, uh, um, I had a season, and you shouldn't follow this, but my wife and I uh, tried to avoid following my footsteps here. My wife and I, when we were dating, we dated for four years, and then we broke up because I was an idiot, basically. And if you want to know the whole story, I'll tell you some other time. Uh, you'll never see me again. Okay, never mind. All right, so uh, we broke up, and we were off for another four years, okay? And then we got back together and got married. So it ended up well. But in that interim, when uh, we were broken up, I actually went on a date with one girl one time because I was in love with her the whole whole time. But I went on this date with this girl. And um, I, I made the dumb mistake of going um, out on a date with this girl uh, when UT, I'm a big Texas Longhorn fan, Texas was playing Texas Tech in football. And um, I'm sitting at the restaurant, and this girl is sitting across from me. And the Texas game is on over her right shoulder, okay? Guys, don't ever, ever, ever do that, okay? Because I'm, I'm trying to have this date, and I look up, and I'm like, oh, because we fell behind 21 to zero. And I'm dying, okay, right? And so we go to a concert afterwards. My phone is buzzing like crazy in my pocket, and I know what that means. It's all my anti-Texas friends going, hey, how about your Longhorns? Uh, you know, I'm like, oh, we're getting killed. So anyways, I take this girl home. And I look at my phone, and I see that Texas came back and won somehow. And I'm like, are you kidding me? So I go home, and of course, we have, uh, this is many years ago, a new invention. It's not new anymore, but it's called the DVR, right? So I recorded it. Now, have you ever watched a game knowing the final score? It's, it's fascinating, because here's what was happening. We're behind 21 to 0. And you know what I was doing? I was going, yes, 21 to zero. I can't wait to see how we go back and win this. And I'm like just salivating, go, come on. You know, the end of the game, Texas with under two minutes fumbled. They were behind. We were behind. We fumbled in our own territory. I mean, normally I'd get up and start kicking things. But you know what I did? I go, we fumbled. I can't wait to see how we win this game. Friend. I'm not saying that when suffering comes, I necessarily pump my fist. But when you know the final score, that God is sovereign even over the trials of your life, and he uses all things, both good and bad, to accomplish that purpose, you're becoming like him, there's a sense that even in suffering, you can say, God, I can't wait to see what you do through this. I can't wait to see what you do through this. But you got to have the right goal. And so, friend, this is Missions Week. I invite you to come back Sunday to hear me talk about how the gospel will propel you to go out and share your faith with others. So I close by saying, look, the very first thing I said is God's desire is that all men would come to repentance, would know him. And I'm telling you, 
There's no waste of your life and your resources if you leverage who you are, your time, talents, and treasures, all right? You leverage it all like that lady did who saw her job not just as a way that she put food on the table for herself, but she saw her job as a tutor, as a mission field, to be able to give a New Testament to some Iranian kid, seven years old at the time, and she has no, she had no idea what God would do with it. All right? Would you bow your head with me and let's pray. Jesus, we love you. God, I, I pray over these college students. And Lord, I love the intersection of life that they're at, where I know for some there's uncertainty, maybe for many, on what 5, 10, 15 years looks like. Really, for all of us, there's uncertainty. But God, they, there's many, uh, many roads in front of them. But God, thank you that you are so clear on what your ultimate desire is for us, that we would know you, that we'd walk in your spirit, that we conform to your image more and more, that we would abstain from sexual immorality, that we'd honor you with our bodies, that we would make you known, that we would trust you in the midst of suffering, that we would be thankful in all things. This is your will. And so God, help us to say, all right, I'm going to major on what you've revealed. And I'll trust you with the rest, God. And I pray that you raise up an army from this group who would live boldly for you and who would trust you and lose their life to follow you, trusting that your way is best. We love you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks, guys. Thank you for listening to this message from Campus Outreach Minneapolis. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without written permission from Campus Outreach Minneapolis. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at cominneapolis.org.